morning. Good morning. Oh, it's good to be together. I see a few of you yawning. It's before I've started preaching, so I won't take it personally. <laughs> Guys, it is a beautiful Palm Sunday. This weather the last 36 hours or so is wonderful. Well, my name is Jonathan Swindle. I'm the worship and executive pastor here. For those of you who are new, welcome. New Life Midtown and the whole New Life family welcomes you. We have a welcome center right out there in the front lobby. And if this is your first or second or third time, we would love to meet you immediately following service. And if you're interested, if you're looking for a home church and you are interested in trying to discern whether New Life Midtown is the place for you. In a few weeks, in the middle of May, we're having what is called New Life Next, and it's a, a, it's a, a lunch immediately following our second service, so right around 1230, and uh, it's sometime in the May 20-somethings. Whatever that Sunday is, that's when we're having that, and you can register on our website, uh, midtown.newlifechurch.org, and it's a time where we serve you a meal, we share a little bit about our church, and we hear about your story. So if you are new and you're looking for a home church, we would love to meet you in that space or immediately following the service out at our Welcome Center. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, I mentioned this at the beginning of service, but today is Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of Holy Week. How many of you were raised in what we would call a high church or a liturgical church? The Episcopal, Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, maybe even Presbyterian or Methodist. Well, Presbyterians, it kind of depends on the church. But <clears throat> So for those of you that raised your hands, this week is no stranger to you. You are used to being in church a lot this week. So I grew up as a Pentecostal, and we had revival weeks. And those were the weeks when we blocked off ample time to be in church, to meet with the Lord and encounter the Holy Spirit. And if you were raised in a liturgical church, then this is one of those weeks for you, Holy Week. And so today is Palm Sunday. This Thursday is Maundy Thursday. We are not having a Maundy Thursday service, but many churches do. Then Good Friday is the day where we come together as a church to commemorate and remember and enter into the space where Jesus was crucified. And we will be joining New Life Downtown, New Life North, and the other congregations will all be meeting at New Life North. But we've chosen to join our brothers and sisters at Downtown, and we will be at Palmer High School Downtown at 6.30 this Friday night. Now, I have one very strong imperative for you. Please put this on your calendar, but put it in at 6.15. Don't put it in at 6.30. One, it's a service you don't want to be late to, and two... If you don't plan for parking, you will be late. So there are four different parking lots that New Life Downtown has reserved. There will be signage. This also was in our weekly email this last Thursday, and we'll make sure it's in this coming Thursday, where the four lots are. But downtown's just a little more difficult to navigate than we just have this wonderful parking lot right here in front of our building. So please don't come to our building. If you do, on Friday there will be a sign directing you to downtown, and then you'll be late. But you might not because it will be in your calendar at 6.15. So perfect. So we look forward to seeing you this Friday for a Good Friday service. And then, of course, on Sunday, we have Resurrection Sunday. We'll be celebrating the risen Christ together next week. Two things about that service. One, for those of you who are here, first servicers, we got to come up with a better title for you guys. 
That's really difficult to say. Plan on staying late. A-team. I like that better. I think they like that better, too. If you're part of the A-team, plan on staying late next week. We'll be having a brunch between services. We look for all kinds of opportunities to bring Congregation A and Congregation B together. And since we have been in two services, we've always done this for Easter Sunday So please plan to stay late, and we will be serving a breakfast, and we're encouraging second service folks to come early. And lastly, before I really dive into the sermon, there are these drop cards, these invite cards. We have some of them. Last week, they were on the chairs, and today we have some that are out at the Welcome Center. And I want, oh, and they're back here at the sound booth as well. I'd like to encourage you, don't don't go back and take 50 of them and litter your neighborhood. That, that, there is a place for that. That's not what these are for. We have a limited number of them. These are for personal invitation. So we want to encourage you, prayerfully consider who is the Lord working on in your life right now? At your work, at the place you play basketball, the place you work out, wherever that may be. Who is the Lord? Who do you sense the Lord is stirring something? And make a personal invitation. Engage in a conversation with that person And then invite them, and then if need be, tell them there's free breakfast next week, okay? So take one of these cards. That's what they're for. They're not for putting in your neighbor's mailboxes. That's fine on some occasions. We don't have thousands of them. That's not what these are for. Today, as I've mentioned, is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is the day in the church calendar where we remember and commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is Jesus' self-declaration of kingship. We're going to be in the book of Luke today. The book of Luke, starting in chapter 9, there is a verse in Luke 9.51. It won't be on the screen, but it says that Jesus set out toward Jerusalem. And the triumphal entry is when Jesus approaches and enters Jerusalem, which is in Luke 19. So for 10 chapters, a third of the book of Luke, a little more of the book of Luke, Jesus is waiting and and he's heading toward the trajectory of this moment when he will enter the city and he knows it will be the last week of his pre-resurrected life. And all of the events of this last week are emphasized in all four gospels. And I want to encourage you that part of the reason we have these services, we have three services in the upcoming week, is not because we don't think you have anything better to do, but it's because we as Christians tether our lives to and anchor our lives to and revolve our lives around the life of Jesus. And we believe that this week in the life of Jesus that he lived 2,000 years ago, still has much to speak to us today, and that there are invitations all along the way. So two quick side points I want to make here before I get into the meat of the message. One is I want to challenge you to cut out some time this week because the Lord is inviting you to sit with him in the elements of this story. This is a story. That's what it is. This is not, this is not doctrine that Jesus stands up and says, these are the 12 most important things about the last week of my life. No, Jesus lived the last week of his life, and there are climaxes all throughout. Pick a gospel. We're going to be in Luke today. Luke will suffice. Pick a gospel and read the sections from the last week of Jesus's life. And I also, the second part of my encouragement to you is I want to encourage you 
to, to find time to be still and silent with the Lord. As Eliot so aptly encouraged us in Christ Be Magnified, it is so easy to blow through a week like this, like you're on a road trip and you're like, where is that city? Oh, we passed it 30 minutes ago. To blow through Holy Week and to not even realize anything happened. So I want to encourage you to find, even if it's 15 or 30 minutes, to just set it aside and sit with Jesus this week. And if you can do much more, then do much more. Okay? So those are my challenges to you. Palm Sunday is the final week of Lent. Lent is a time of repentance. It's the time of being confronted with our sinfulness and our finitude, our temporality. On Ash Wednesday, which launches us into Lent, the tradition is to put a cross of ash on the forehead to remind us that from dust we came and to dust we will return. It's the time that we might say we are confronted with the brutal facts, the brutal facts of our need, the brutal facts that we alone are not enough, that we are in a pickle that we can't do anything to get ourselves out of. And this week is the climax of that. So we're also in a series on who is Jesus. And the question of Jesus' whole ministry is the question of the series, and it's the question of the last week of Jesus' life. And the question is this, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? That is the most important question. Who does he think he is? Who we think he is matters, but who he thinks he is is the most important. Because even if we don't think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, as the friend of sinners, as our teacher, as our healer, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, it doesn't change the fact that he still is those things. And today we're going to be examining Jesus as the King. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn together. Luke chapter 19. This will be our base camp for this morning. <clears throat> and um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurry through to the question of what kind of king is Jesus. But first, I want to read the story, starting in verse 28, 1928. After Jesus had said this, we're not going to read what he said. You'll have to go back this week in your alone time. <laughs> he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Okay, so remember, like I said, in Luke, it starts in chapter 9. Jesus starts in Galilee, which is at the top of the country of Israel. The whole country of Israel is about the size of New Jersey, so it's not very large. But when you're walking, that's a long walk. So for a third of the book of Luke, Jesus is walking with his disciples, stopping along the way. But this is his trajectory the whole time. Verse 28, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Excuse me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Imagine that. Jesus knew what he was talking about. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the story of Palm Sunday. And all four Gospels hold this story, and they tell it with slightly different details, but we read from Luke today. The triumphal entry is the definitive declaration of Jesus' kingship. And when they were watching this happen, they most surely would have had in mind Zechariah 9.9, this prophecy about this moment. Keep in mind, the Jewish people, especially those who are living in the city of Jerusalem, are living under Roman rule, Roman oppression, and they are constantly looking for and awaiting the Messiah. And there are all of these verses from the Old Testament, primarily the prophets, that give these hints about what they can expect. And as we know and we talk about often, they most frequently would note a part of it, but they would misinterpret it or they would misunderstand it. And there is this verse in Zechariah chapter 9 that they would surely have had in mind. And it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They also would have had in mind this triumphal entry had happened before with other kings of Israel. One time it happened with King Solomon in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1. One of David's other sons, Adonijah, had with his mother conferred that, well, I think I want to be king. So he starts working this plan to, to self-declare himself as king. And David gets wind of it and says, no, Solomon is supposed to be, be king it's time, we got to make this happen because David's at the end of his life. And David knows that if he doesn't do it, then his, king, his sons are going to be at odds with one another and they're going to likely kill one another and whoever wins, then they'll be king. So David says, go get my royal donkey, put Solomon on it, start him at the city gates and parade him through the city. And this will be Solomon's triumphal entry. It is the sign that Solomon is to be the king. The donkey is a symbol of peace. It is the sign of victory. As we heard in Zechariah chapter 9, victorious and righteous, coming to you on the foal of a donkey. But here's one of the things that is unique about Jesus' triumphal entry. What victory has he won? I think there are two things that are peculiar and unique about Jesus' triumphal entry. The first is that he announces that he is the victorious king. By this act, they most surely all would have had this in mind. And they're all going, Jesus hasn't fought any battles. So Jesus is telling them two things. One, Jesus is announcing the victory before the greatest battle that has ever happened happens. And the second thing, the most important thing, I think, is that Jesus is telling us that he is the rightful king not because he has won battles, but because God, his father, has anointed him as such. And because God, his father, has anointed him as the rightful, true king, then he will win the battle of all battles that is otherwise impossible to win. So right off the bat, we get this image that Jesus is the king, but he's a peculiar king. He's not the same kind of king. 
And what do we know about kings? You know, we are fascinated as a human race. We are fascinated with power, with how people ascend to power. I mean, how many of you are period peace watchers? I know Pastor Christie is. How many of you love history and the stories of battle? We have a PhD historian in the church this morning. The study of battles and the study of what wins and how these great minds, these people who rise to power and stay in power, or the minds of people who are willing to oppose and challenge like Robin Hood or William Wallace. We are fascinated with these people and these stories of power. What do we know about kings? We definitively know two things about all kings. One, they demand loyalty. Kings demand loyalty. And the second thing is kings are a threat to other kings. <laughs> kings are a threat to other kings. So we've talked about Jesus as the prince of peace and Jesus as our teacher and Jesus as the friend of sinners. And these things are very, very, very meaningful. But none of those things are what got Jesus killed on Good Friday. What got Jesus killed on Good Friday was his self-declaration that he is the Messiah and the king of kings. Why? Because kings are a threat to other kings. If, Ju uh, if Jesus is truly king, then they have to take all of him, his teachings, his miracles, everything he said and did seriously. Jesus' triumphal entry was the statement that threatened Caesar, Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And this moment, everyone is realizing that this guy, Jesus, who had been up in Galilee for most of his life, Surely they would have gotten wind of who he is and who he thought he was. But it's likely that until this moment, most of the powers didn't really have to take Jesus too seriously until he declares his kingship. What kind of king is Jesus? I'm going to give you my thesis statement right up front. This is not a lecture, but as if it were, Jesus is the true king who reorders the whole world and restores humanity for our sake, doing nothing for his own benefit and everything for ours. What kind of king is Jesus? He's the kind of king who does not have on his mind at every step of the road self-preservation and how to strengthen and enhance his kingdom, how to dominate other kings, how to take other lands. Jesus is the kind of king who comes down for the sake of all of the quote-unquote subjects. That Jesus lives his life, teaches what he teaches, heals the way he heals, and gives his life for the sake of benefiting everyone else all the time. This is what makes Jesus unique and different. So I believe that what follows the story of the triumphal entry, there are a number of things in all of the Gospels. There are things that happen, miracles, stories, teachings, from the moment of triumphal entry to Maundy Thursday. And then, of course, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. But one of the things that follows all of the stories, well, there, there are a few things that follow all of the stories, and we're going to focus on Luke this morning is I'm going to highlight four things that Jesus does and participates in that reveal and reiterate his kingship. The first one, Jesus is a king who weeps for his people. 
We're still in Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city. So this is before, before the moment where he, he's truly entered into the city, but he's right on the cusp. And he's looking out over Jerusalem. If you've been to Israel, you, you'll know that the old city is not really that big. I mean, it's pretty easy to see the whole thing from a quarter of a mile away. So Jesus is there, and he's looking over the city. And then at the end of our verse 42, if you, even you, or let me, let me start over because I missed the part where he wept. Sorry, guys. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Okay, now verse 42. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I want to say a few things about this. One, Jesus feels deeply. He is grieved. He is lamenting. He is weeping. And it's not because of his own death. He's not sad or grieved because he's about to die. That will happen. That will happen in the garden. But in this moment, he is grieved because they, his people, the people he was sent to, did not recognize the things that make for peace, the things that bring about peace. They wanted peace. Remember, they are living under the oppression of Rome, and there are all these little sects, these little groupings, these little groupings of insurrectionists that would pop up and try and, they would try and defend themselves against Rome. And their hope was that the Messiah would come and be victorious in the way that they knew victory. What does that mean? That means that he's going to be a more powerful Caesar. That he's going to come into the city and he's going to overthrow Caesar. So what they think they're doing in those moments is being a prophetic witness to the Messiah who's going to come. And Jesus is grieved because that's not the kind of Messiah he is. That's not the kind of king he is. Jesus' kingdom doesn't fight Rome with Rome's rules. He doesn't fight Rome with Rome's ways. And Jesus is grieved because his whole teaching ministry has been trying to reveal the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. And yet you still want to co-opt me for the kingdoms of this world to overthrow them with my power to your ends according to their ways. They wanted Jesus to lead the revolution against Rome. They didn't have an imagination to imagine that peace could come about any other way. And this grieved the heart of Jesus. Said differently, they were blind to the ways that their path would bring destruction for them and their own city, the city of Jerusalem. What about us this morning? Are there ways that we love Jesus, as Sidron mentioned a couple of weeks when he talked about Jesus as teacher, but we're like Peter, looking at Jesus like, look, dude, you stay in the religious lane. You're, you're trying to tell me how to do my occupation? Guys, here's the thing about Jesus. If he truly is king, then he has authority and he speaks to every area of our lives. Every area of our lives 
are submitted to Jesus. Jesus speaks to the way we spend our money, the way we treat people, the way we use our time, the things that we don't give our time to, the things that we don't use our money for. Jesus cares about all of it. And I think we are prone to wanting to co-opt Jesus's power for the kingdoms of this world so that we can feel like we are serving Jesus and yet we're still being blessed in all the ways that the world is being blessed. Now look, I'm not saying that, that everything of this world is a terrible thing and that we should all go move into the desert and live in isolation. There are sections of the church that do that. I'm not proposing that. I don't think that's the way we're called to live. But we have to come to grips with Jesus is grieved when we don't take seriously his entire kingdom, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords over all, that there is no area of our lives that Jesus is not wanting to touch. Jesus also weeps when we want him primarily for the change he can affect out there without expecting it to start with us. See, this is one of the things that grieved Jesus' heart with these original disciples in the ancient Jerusalem is that they wanted Jesus to come and do their dirty work for them. They wanted Jesus to rid them of Rome, to deliver them from the people that were oppressing them. Were the people who were oppressing them wrong? Yes, they were. They were absolutely wrong. But they wanted Jesus to do away with them and assumed that he had nothing to say to them about what's in here. So the first thing is that Jesus weeps. The second thing is, well, wh where does Jesus go from there? Jesus goes directly to the temple. Jesus doesn't start out there. Jesus doesn't start by going and confronting Pilate immediately. Jesus doesn't start by sending a letter to Caesar. Jesus starts his first act after declaring himself the king is he goes right to his own. He goes to the temple. Let's keep reading. Verses 45 and 46, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, follow the triumphal entry, all of them with this story, and Matthew and Mark with also the story of the cursing of the fig tree. It's not random. It's very significant and intentional. The story of the fig tree is really unique, and it's a little bit perplexing, but I think what the writers of Scripture are wanting us to see is that Jesus' first act to usher in the new age is to cleanse corruption and prune unfruitfulness. Jesus doesn't go and immediately confront the enemies of the Jewish people he goes right to the heart of Jewish faith and cleanses and purges the temple. This also was prophesied in the book of Malachi. And the order here is that Jesus, the sequence is that Jesus cleanses the temple and then sets up shop where he teaches until he is brought before the rulers and his life is taken. And this is prophesied in the book of Malachi chapter 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? His coming is the coming of the Lord. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. We don't exactly know what it was, but there was something in the prophet taking that was unjust and undermining the purpose of the temple. There were rituals that it is likely Jesus was fine with the rituals of going and purchasing the things that were to be sacrificed in the outer courts of the temple. But most scholars are speculating that there was price gouging, that there was taking advantage of people. There was unjust activity taking place in the courts of the temple that were making it difficult for the poor, for the least of these, and for those who had traveled the furthest to come to make sacrifices at the temple. So Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter and drives out all that is unjust. He doesn't go straight to the the temple to defend it. He goes straight to the temple to cleanse it. And I think this is a sobering word for us, that the temple is a beautiful gift. The temple itself was, until the life of Jesus, it is the place where they could be sure that God's presence dwelt. It was the unique symbol of the Jewish faith. It was a good thing. How many good things has God given us in our lives? Our spouse, our children, our jobs, the church, the list goes on and on and on. And I think what this particular story is trying to tell us is that it is, our, it is the things that we think are most untouchable because they are given to us by God that are the most susceptible to being corrupted in our lives precisely because we think there's nothing wrong with them because God gave them to us. Most of the people in this room are not going to struggle with egregious sins. The things that, when I say the word egregious, pop into your mind, those are probably not the areas where the enemy is most at work. It's probably the things we don't ever think about because we assume we're just fine. And it was this exact thing with the people of Israel. Jesus is coming into the city. and The last thing they expect him to do is to go to their headquarters, their temple, and make a fuss. No, Jesus, you're supposed to go right to Herod. Go right to Pilate. Go right to Caesar, though Caesar didn't dwell in Jerusalem. But you get the point. But Jesus goes right to the heart of their faith. He refuses to just do work out there. Jesus is always coming to do work right in here, always. But here's the good news. Jesus never cleanses anything to condemn. Whatever and wherever he cleanses, it's to make space to fill with himself. Right after Jesus cleanses the temple, what does it say? Every day he was teaching at the temple. Everything Jesus touches and everything Jesus cleanses, it's not to condemn, it's not to point out it's evil just for the sake of pointing it out, it's to cleanse it so that he can dwell in that space, so that he can fill that space. The author of the book of Ephesians at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 says 
that in the end, Jesus will be all in all, filling all things with himself. This starts with you and with me. Lord, are there spaces in my life that they're just, they're blind spots that I assume they're fine because maybe they're areas of ministry, they're gifts that I have, they're areas that I definitively know that they came from you, whatever they might be. Jesus wants to cleanse even those things. The third is that Jesus serves his disciples. In all of the gospels, on Monday, Thursday, Jesus comes to serve them the Passover meal. And in the book of John, it's accompanied and followed by a foot washing service. So turn over with me just a couple of pages to Luke chapter 22. We're going to read verses 24 through 27. So Jesus has just served the disciples the Passover meal, and we have these verses. <laughs> Pastor Brady always says, wherever two or more are gathered, there's going to be a fuss. That's why Jesus is there. And that's exactly what happens. Luke chapter 22, verse, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Guys, literally, after they'd be like going down to your seat, receiving communion, and then getting into an argument about who's better with the person sitting next to you. This is what's happening. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. A paradox here. Earthly powers rule by fear and their fear is designed to benefit up the chain. That's what Jesus said. The rulers of the Gentiles then become benefactors for those above them. And this is the way that most of our modern systems still work, right? The people at the bottom of the chain serve the people who are above them so that they can serve and please the people who are above them so that they can serve and please the people who are above them. That ultimately, in the systems of this world, anytime someone at the top is serving someone below them, there is some way that ultimately it comes around to benefit them, whether through loyalty or by blackmail, you owe me one. The systems of this world, it is designed, serving is designed to benefit the people above. And Jesus flips the whole thing on its head and says, who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? And here's what we know about Jesus. It was my thesis statement, remember? Everything that Jesus does is to restore us, to bring benefit to us. Jesus' life is not enhanced or made better when we do things for him. When we do things for him, it's because it's good for us and it's good for the people around us. Remember, God has no need. There is nothing inside of God that needs us to sing songs or to give our money. God knows that when we sing songs to him, when we give money, when we come into this space, that the idols that we sang about in Christ be magnified, their grip on us is loosened. Serving is who Jesus is. It wasn't a technique. It wasn't something that Jesus did so that 
fill in the blank with anything. Serving is who God is when God takes on flesh. Philippians chapter 2, this famous passage. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're almost wrapping up, friends. I'm going to start in verse 3. Do not do anything or do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Think about this. Jesus valued us. Jesus valued your life above his own. And that wasn't a ploy. It wasn't a technique. He wasn't walking through a mechanical system like, I'll do this so that I can do this so that finally I can just go and ascend and be with the Father again. No, when God takes on flesh, this is who he is. Jesus is unable to do anything that is contrary to his character. Jesus actually thinks of us and values us and our lives above his own. This is unbelievable. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If Aaron would come and the communion attendants would come, Jesus the King doesn't come to make us his servants. He comes to serve us and make us co-heirs. Think about that. Jesus doesn't come just to, to model for us how to serve so that then we'll get in line to serve him. Our serving him is because it's good for us and it's good for our neighbor. Jesus calls us friends. Jesus calls us co-heirs. We are co-heirs with the living Christ because he has served us. And here's the thing about serving. The only authentic way in the kingdom to really serve anyone else is to first be served by Jesus. We have to allow Jesus to serve us this meal, to wash our feet before we can truly do anything of service for anyone else. This is the core of the Christian life, that every good thing you and I do is always a response. You and I initiate nothing. Everything we do that is good, any ounce of good that flows from us is a response to the goodness of God that he has already put in us and enacted on our behalf. The last point, Jesus weeps, Jesus cleanses, Jesus serves. The last is that Jesus dies to save humanity. So many times in Luke chapter 23, if you choose Luke to read this week, you will read in Luke 23 at least three times, different characters in the story tell Jesus, save yourself, save yourself. Could he? Of course he could have. Did he? He did not. The irony is that Jesus doesn't save himself and it's that choice that leads to our salvation and the salvation of the very people who were telling him to save himself. Friends, this is the kind of king that Jesus is. And the question for us this morning is, will we embrace and follow Jesus as the king that he is? Will we take him seriously? Or do we want Jesus only for the kind of power he can bring to us to change what's out there? 
will we let him be king in here and change this way from the inside out? Let's stand together, prepare our hearts to come to the table. I mentioned in the beginning that humans are fascinated with stories of power, with people of power, with people who challenge power. Do you know what we're also fascinated with? Stories of great sacrifice. And when we think of Jesus, and when we come to this table, this is Eucharist. It's called Eucharist in the higher churches, in more liturgical churches. And Eucharist is just the word that means thanksgiving. And we're thankful in so many ways, but at least on two fronts are we thankful every time we come to this table. We're thankful, one, that Jesus' life was effective, that when he died, it actually did something for us. That if you or I die, it would be a tragedy, but it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't make anything more possible. But here's the other thing we're thankful for, that Jesus is the kind of king who is willing to lay down his life. He's not just the one that held the power to do something on our behalf, but Jesus was more than willing. He was more than willing. As we come forward this morning, you will note that we have eight lovely physical embodied communion attendants today. And I want, I, I know we're a couple of minutes over. We had some really important things here in the beginning of our service. But these lines are going to go just a little bit slower this morning because they're going to look you in the eyes and they're going to say, body of Christ broken for you. And if they know your name, they're going to try and say your name. They might not this morning just to not embarrass themselves or get in a pickle, but that's the long-term goal. The long-term goal is to say as many names as we can. So don't rush, come forward and see Jesus through these eight individuals speaking to you, my body. So come out, out of the left side of your rows and receive the body of Christ and the blood of Christ broken and shed for you.
communion attendants are going to stay in place while we're, we're finishing uh, the lines. This morning, not only do we have beautiful embodied communion attendants, but they're going to stay and be available for ministry at the end of service. This is something that we had before COVID, and we loved it, and we lamented that we lost it for so long. And we have looked for ways, you know, table groups are a wonderful way. A lot of times during worship, pastor or one of the others will come up and lead us into body ministry. But this is the space, church, where we are served by Christ, the body and the blood, and then we are served by Christ through his people. So if you have a need this morning, a relational need, a need for healing, a need financially, whatever it may be, right after we sing the doxology, I just want to invite you to come forward and they'll stay up here for a couple of minutes and pray with you, lay hands on you, whatever it is that they sense that the Lord is directing them in those moments. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, for I have received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A warning, if you crush this one, it will crush into hundreds of little pieces. So don't leave your fingers open. Close your fingers. But church, break the, break the bread and let us receive the body of Christ for us today. The authentic body of Christ. And in the same way, guys, I think that, that might have been a ruckus dinner. Who knows? After supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let us receive the blood of Christ shed for you and me. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for these good gifts. And now as we often do, let us sing the doxology and be reminded that every good gift comes from the Father above, including the best gift, the gift of his Son, so that we could live and walk in new Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father. come and been tethered to and reminded of our King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now go in the peace of his kingdom and his reign wherever you go this week. Church, it was good to be with you today. You're dismissed. Yes.